0: In this podcast, I want to discuss only four types of sabotage that have to do with subversive warfare. The first theme is something we have discussed throughout our study of subversion. This is sabotage as a description of the overall end state of subversive warfare. As a melodramatic illustration, this is when a target government looks back at a thousand subversive cuts or a slowing down of their industrial war machine or infighting over ideology of their populations and armies, and declares, finally realizing the totality of years of subversion that we, quote-unquote, have been sabotage. The infighting that may cause this realization, too late, by the way, may have been winning, knowing cogent plans of saboteurs and subversives. It may be at the hands of unwitting saboteurs, or often... It may have been self-sabotage that the antagonist has indirectly and silently enabled, allowed, or leveraged. This is a type of subversion, which we have already discussed, causing doubts and infighting within an organization specifically. This point is not particularly original to this course, but is worth underlining, is worth mentioning, as some professionals consider this indirect sabotage, or a subtle sabotage, instead of using the word subversion. The second theme we may consider are those final throws of some subversive warfare. If that subversive warfare actually goes kinetic in the form of revolution, revolt, overthrow, guerrilla warfare, or mass terrorism. Specifically, right when it goes kinetic and turns to more kinetic battles. Examples include saboteurs setting Europe figuratively and sometimes literally on fire after the Allied landing in Normandy, the British SOE was created, and I quote, to coordinate all action by the way of subversion and sabotage. And then I go on to quote, to set Europe ablaze. And sabotage of facilities, railroads, airfields were ignited as the Allies landed on Normandy. According to Paul Kicks, and I quote, in May of 1940, with the situation in France worsening, The British Chiefs of Staff recommended to the War Cabinet a new and special organization that could create widespread revolt in Germany's conquered territories. We have got to organize movements in enemy-occupied territory. This democratic international must use many different methods, including industrial and military sabotage, labor agitation and strikes, continuous propaganda, terrorist acts against traitors, German leaders, boycotts, and riots. What is needed is a new organization to coordinate, inspire, control, assist the nationals of the oppressed countries who must themselves be the direct participants. We need absolute secrecy, a certain fanatical enthusiasm, willingness to work with people of different nationalities, complete political reliability. To coordinate, once again, all action by way of subversion and sabotage, against the enemy overseas. Another example are the guerrillas in the Philippines turning it up to 11, throwing off all caution and subtlety and destroying and blowing up every possible Japanese position before MacArthur's return. And then just as MacArthur returned in 1945, followed by saboteurs acting as guides to the U.S. Army, covering flanks, taking out Japanese positions in hills, Mountains, forests, swamps, caves, followed by brutal urban warfare, fighting the Japanese block by block at the battle, as the Battle of Luzon, the largest Philippine island, turned to the Battle of Manila. Altogether, one of the bloodiest battles of World War II, one of the deadliest battles in human history. And from the Ramsey reading that you'll have shortly in this course, MacArthur sent a message to guerrilla commanders via radio before the U.S. Army landed, and it read, starting immediately, destroy enemy wire communications, railroad tracks, rolling stock and trucks, planes concealed in dispersal areas, ammunition, oil, and supply dumps. And then the crescendo, unleash maximum possible violence against the enemy. The third theme is how to look internally to an organization to the inverse of institutional sabotage, as managers, leaders, and subordinates may unwittingly sabotage the efficiency and of effectiveness of an institution through bad management practices, through a toxic atmosphere, or through some hidden ill will, perhaps subconscious gripe. One of the lessons from the World War II OSS document on simple sabotage is that it is about good people and good leadership above systems and standards that allows an organization to run well. The bottom line is that if you have motivated jackrabbits with a chip on their shoulders and something to prove, you may want to provide the room to allow them to thrive so that they are happy in their basic tasks and can help the organization do better. Not punish them by putting them in their place and, and I hope you guys get this reference, forcing them to do TPS reports and abide by feckless, endless business processes and standards, eight bosses, and being drowned out in meetings all day, every day. The fourth theme and the focus on this podcast and this lesson is what I would call institutional sabotage. This is when fellow travelers or fifth columns secretly and subtly undermine the morale and effectiveness of an organization. According to the Office of Strategic Services in 1944, and I quote, this is a type of simple sabotage, requires no destructive tools whatsoever, and produces physical damage, if any, by highly indirect means. It is based on universal opportunities to make faulty decisions, to adopt a non-cooperative attitude, to induce others to follow suit. A non-cooperative attitude may involve nothing more than creating an unpleasant situation among others one's fellow workers, engaging in bickering or displaying surliness and stupidity. So a little more on this institutional sabotage. This considers acts of deliberately obstructing, slowing, damaging, destroying uh, a group or a network or a system or an apparatus, uh, often for a political or a military advantage. And this calls back to the definitions from Merriam-Webster about sabotage, which is it can be an act to process uh, or act or process tending to hamper or hurt, or it can be considered a uh, form of deliberate subversion. Sabotage need not be dramatic or sudden; it can be discreet, subtle, even unnoticed, and long-term. If, for example, a man a manager in a bureaucratic organization subtly institutes unnecessary policies, procedures permissions, meetings, paperwork, attention to unimportant details, paralysis by analysis, excessive planning, excessive layers of oversight, and less than efficient management to retard the overall mission of the organization. His actions may be perceived by his superiors and peers as either one, attentive and thorough oversight management, perversely, paradoxically. And ironically, and this is often the case, two, less than ideal, but nevertheless sufficient enough leadership, or three, just dismissed as benign, unique style of leadership. Similarly, a worker may labor slowly or inefficiently just enough to be acceptable to the organization with the intent to lessen the overall effectiveness of the organization or state. If one wishes to find specific methods to slowly and discreetly sabotage the effectiveness of an organization, one should seek out advice from certain service members of certain Marine and Special Forces units. Very often, units of this caliber implement some of the world's best management systems, efficient and effective, and driven by survival and resolute dedication to mission success and trust. These types of units have slim management systems that tend to empower frontline troops. They employ motivational narrative, esprit de corps, input from all, invited criticism from all, and respect for everyone so that they can better kill and win battles. Of course, this is not always the case with such units, but it is in these organizations that officers and senior non-commissioned officers are most sensitive sometimes to inefficiencies, and ineffective leadership. They are trained to sniff out, to learn from, and then to snuff out such detrimental practices. And they also inversely, sort of reverse engineering these ideas, often have wicked insights into how best to make an organization ineffective and inefficient. So how do we allow another government or another organization in another government To conduct institutional sabotage? Well, you have to find already willing fifth columns and fellow travelers and trends to want to oppose that government. They already have to have the will, they already have to exist, and hopefully they're not dumb enough and you're not dumb enough to communicate with them directly. Then you will openly provide general outlines on how they can conduct institutional sabotage and the advantages of institutional sabotage and to do so in a way that cannot and will not arouse suspicion in such a way they their management style will ironically and paradoxically oftentimes be praised and at the very least they will not be seen as subversives or they will not be seen as subversive or treasonous subversive warfare and sabotage in particular is most often not BBC and CNN and Fox News ready guerrilla warfare It's not some scarf-wearing, Che t-shirt-wearing, AK-47-wielding fighters. It is often not assassins and explosions. If you are a mother, a grandmother, living in an authoritarian regime that you oppose, you could develop some Hollywood-ready plot to target government officials. You will almost assuredly fail, and along with you, your family, your friends, and fellow subversives will be roundly and immediately and ruthlessly rounded up. Even if you succeed on one mission, your network will cease to exist, your fight, your crusade will die before it even really starts. Instead of being immediately cut down, it may be far more effective to slowly degrade the bureaucracies and institutions of that state, to slyly, stealthily, indirectly, subtly inspire others to do likewise, to have strategic long-term effects. Standing up directly to authoritarian regimes can be brave, and it can earn you a footnote in history, but the vast majority of time, you will fail. Your effort will fail, and your family and friends and networks will be tortured and killed, and the state will redouble its anti-subversion efforts. This is what makes institutional sabotage especially effective. If done well, If you are not stupid enough to openly communicate about it or stupid enough to have OSS Simple Sabotage Manual on your hard drive, if you're not stupid enough to keep a journal of any kind, it is almost impossible to detect and over time has the potential to slow and then perhaps collapse a bureaucracy, even a government, perhaps over enough time a state. The following is one example of a way to coyly institute institutional sabotage, this is an article entitled "Entitled Excuse Me: uh, The Salieri Syndrome" by C.J. Cornell. Came out in May 2021, and I quote: "Salieri's are mildly talented people in large organizations in a position to help you, but instead they undermine your success, whether by devious intention." Or by clueless incompetence, Saliaris can slowly destroy your business, your potential, and your spirit. They are experts in killing ideas without being identified as the assassin. Saliaris don't overtly undermine the entrepreneur. They merely delay, deflect, and deceive. They cause the entrepreneur to expend critical time and energy on futile activities. Saliaris are dangerous because they seem like allies, fans, and helpers, so your guard is down. They have just a little power, not because of their own accomplishments, but because of a position that they hold inside an organization. They are gatekeepers with access to resources, connections, and opportunities. These Saliaris never say no. In fact, they say yes a lot, and then they go silent or disappear. They give hope and a dopamine-induced thrill of the potential sale or funding, only to have something fall apart later. You know they have Salieri syndrome when you see the following behavior again and again. Ghosting, unreturned emails, or emails returned too late. Uh, other example, gating of resources, information. Gaslighting, remembering conversations and commitments differently. Delaying until all momentum is lost and you have to start over. Deferring. Introducing unexpected decision makers who need to be convinced. Detailing. Constantly asking for more detail, more documentation before proceeding to the next step. Defecting. Working with or talking with your competition after your initial meeting without ever telling you. The problem is that you don't always know right away if a Salieri is undermining you. Sure, no single raindrop believes it's responsible for the flood, but each one of their actions add up to disaster for entrepreneurs. So the following is a very colorful but tactical uh, and very, very short-lived case study on sabotage. And I use this only as an illustration, as a way of viewing um, institutional, if you will, sabotage. Again, this was short-lived and tactical in nature. Uh, This is an article by Keller Ellsworth from 2016, and I quote, this is about what's called quote-unquote, the matchbook trickery during World War II, which some of you may know about. So during World War II, fighter pilots engaged in uh, my manipulation with the German army. From high in the air, the pilots would drop matchbooks with seditious instructions for how German soldiers could fake illnesses in hopes of being released from military service. According to Sergeant Major Herbert A. Friedman, the instructions could be as specific as to induce artificial skin inflammation, to stimulate a heart condition, uh, to take certain types of drugs that uh, might—or medicine that might make you seem sick, and to report to a doctor with certain complaints. Now, these tactics, they served two purposes— First, and most most obvious, was to get German soldiers to abandon the war. It provided a method for soldiers already checked out mentally or morally to get home. The second result, and perhaps the more important result, uh, was the planting of doubt within the minds of officers about the loyalty of their men. Faking illnesses to avoid fighting, an officer would come to be suspicious of any malady within his ranks." A handful who were legitimately sick, these are the soldiers that were legitimately sick, and legitimately needed medical attention, or even worse, for the ranks, needed to be quarantined. So, for example, if they got sick, they had an infectious disease, they should be quarantined. But by creating this uncertainty, this paranoia, this doubt, the German officers uh, would believe that these people were faking And so they kept them in the ranks. So people that were legitimately sick or infectious were kept in the ranks because of this overall uh, suspicion of soldiers pretending to be sick. And I have one saved round on informing saboteurs, whether it is physical saboteurs, in other words, saboteurs on facilities, or if it is institutional sabotage. Now, although intelligence and the vulnerabilities of targets may be helpful for saboteur, there is another industry that is often most sensitive to and has the greatest insight into degrading systems at all levels. This is the insurance industry. Sabotage commanders have often sought the advice of appropriate insurance uh, underwriting agents to the myriad of ways to degrade or destroy equipment and systems and institutions. These commercial professionals often dedicate their professional lives to to Investigating Insurance Fraud, uh, fraud, Systematic Vulnerabilities, and Best Practices of Maintenance and Use. These people can be read into certain missions. Uh, You can find them in the National Guard and in the Reserves, for example. Thank you.